Hi, I'm Kyle Carlson, and you're listening to one of my messages from Imprint Community Church in Northeast Baltimore. I pray that this message will encourage you in your walk with Jesus Christ. Visit us online at imprintcommunity.org and worship with us in person on Sundays at 10 a.m. at Seven Oaks Elementary School. Enjoy the message. We're in the 18th chapter of John's Gospel. Last week, Dr. Kevin Smith was with us, and he walked us through the first 11 verses of this chapter where we saw Jesus confronted by his arrest, those who would arrest him. His betrayer, Judas, we know had been one of the 12 followers that had been with Jesus for about three years, and he handed him over for a little bit of cash to those who had put in motion a plot to kill Jesus. And so last week, Judas led this crowd of Roman soldiers and Jewish officials into the garden where Jesus and his disciples were praying, and they confronted him, and they said that they were looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And so Peter, as we saw last week, zealous as he is, uh, took a sword and attempted probably to take off the head of one of these soldiers and ended up only getting an ear. And Jesus rebuked Peter in that moment, and he said, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And so we see the incredible submission of Jesus to the will of his Father, even as the will of his Father leads him into the darkest and most brutal pain and suffering that any human being has experienced or will ever experience. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And so that leads us to our verses today. Before we start walking through these verses, I want to make you aware of two things about this text. Number one is the way that John tells this part of the story kind of cuts back and forth between two, if you will imagine like a movie scene, two camera shots. There's one camera shot with a couple of characters in close-up talking with each other, and then there'll be a cut, and then there's another camera shot. Maybe the scene is happening even within the same room, but this shot zeroes in on different characters and maybe they're having a conversation. And so the story can advance with, along two lines at the same time. It's a very common cinematic technique to have one camera shot over here and then cut to another camera shot on some other characters in the same place. And so John uses a very cinematic approach. I recognize that that is an anachronism because cinema didn't exist back then. But that's the kind of approach he uses in telling this part of the story. So in camera one, we're going to have Jesus himself as he stands before Annas, the high priest, or the father-in-law of the high priest. We'll talk about that in a minute. And then in camera number two, we're going to zero in on Peter. And so you have this narrative advancing in two ways in the same place. The second thing that I want you to be aware of is a reminder of a prediction that Jesus made, or maybe a prophecy is a better word, in John chapter 13, verse 38. So during Jesus' farewell discourse, that whole sermon that he was preaching to his disciples, sharing with them what was going to happen when he left, 
during that time, Jesus said to them, I'm going away and you can't follow me. And Peter said in verse 37 of chapter 13, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. So Jesus has told Peter, you're not going to be quite so strong as you think you are. Because when the pressure's on, even before the rooster crows to signal the end of this very night, you will have three times disowned me, denied that you even know me. And so, with that reminder that Jesus has predicted Peter's failure to represent Jesus, and the awareness that this scene cuts back and forth between these two characters, Jesus and Peter. Let's go ahead and jump to the first shot, if you will. Camera number one finds Jesus appearing before Annas. Look at verse 12. It says, So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. All right, so Jesus had stopped Peter from attacking, said, I'm going to drink the cup the Father's given me, and so they've now bound him in ropes or chains or whatever, and they're leading him now toward the high priest. It says, first they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. And then John reminds us, it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. So we got to pause and introduce a couple of characters, or at least remind ourselves of a character that had been introduced briefly earlier. So we got two guys named here. One is a guy named Annas. Annas was the father-in-law, it tells us, of the current high priest, whose name is Caiaphas. Now, Annas had served as the high priest for the people of Israel from 6 to 15 AD. Those were the years, not like 1996, 6 to 15, all right? That had been Annas's uh, position or when he occupied the, the office of high priest until a Roman governor by the name of Valerius Gratus deposed him. In other words, removed him from his office as high priest. That Roman governor is the predecessor to another Roman governor who you're probably familiar with, who we'll see in our story in the next couple of weeks, a guy named Pilate. Anybody familiar with that Roman governor? So his predecessor removed from office the former high priest of Israel. That is Annas. You could probably imagine that the people of Israel were none too thrilled with this foreign political power exercising control over their leaders, over their God-ordained leadership, because the high priest was, in fact, an office that God had put in place for the nation of Israel under the old covenant. The high priest would be the one who would represent the sinful people before God. And once a year on the Day of Atonement, which is still recognized, by the way, Yom Kippur is what it's called. You'll see that on the calendar. You probably even have that day off of school. That's the day of atonement when the high priest would enter the presence of God in the temple with a sacrifice to cover the sins of the people of Israel for that year. That was the role of the high priest. 
And under the old covenant, under the Mosaic law, that office was a lifelong office. So when somebody was appointed as high priest, he was high priest until he died. And then the next guy would be called on. So it's unusual that a high priest would only serve for like 10 years. So Anna served from 6 to 15 until a Roman governor fired him. So there's resentment on the part of the people of Israel for this interference from Rome. And because of that, there is still an, a level of respect and authority that is afforded even the former high priest by the people of Israel. So when John will refer to Annas and Caiaphas as the high priest, that's what he means. It's sort of like we still call former presidents, president so-and-so. Like he's always that. And so Annas is always high priest Annas, even though he's not currently occupying that office. And so uh, Annas uh, as well, it's also uh, notable that Annas had five sons as well as a son-in-law who would serve as high priest after him. So Annas is the patriarch of a wealthy high priestly family. This is a powerful family and a powerful man uh, in the nation of Israel. And in fact, the high priest was probably the kind of highest religious and political office within, uh, among the people of Israel at this time. And so Annas has a lot of influence, if not formal authority. And so that's where Jesus goes first. Now Caiaphas, who is currently serving as a high priest, we saw once before, and John reminds us, because he doesn't want us to miss the importance of Caiaphas's role. He tells us it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Now that advisement came in chapter 11, verse 49 and 50, where the Sanhedrin, that's the priests and the leaders uh, among the Jewish people, have all met together and are trying to figure out what are we going to do about Jesus. And Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people not that the whole nation should perish. So Caiaphas is just speaking politically here. What is going to be useful for them to maintain their office, to maintain power and control and prestige and honor the way that it is? Because if this Jesus raises up a band of followers who then revolt, then everything changes. And their cushy positions of power and honor are in jeopardy. And so Caiaphas, the high priest, says it's going to be better if we figure out a way to get rid of Jesus and in so doing, save the nation. So he's politically speaking, this one man will die and the whole nation will be saved. But John told us in chapter 11, verse 51, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So Caiaphas becomes an unwitting prophet of God. And in his effort to just be politically savvy, accidentally prophesies Jesus would die for the nation. Not only for the nation, but for all the children of God around the world, tribe, tongue, and nation, and language, who 
belonged to God and were scattered around the world. So John sees fit to remind us, Caiaphas is the guy who made this accidental prophecy that Jesus would die for the nation. So that's as far as we get with that shot. It's just kind of an establishing shot. We see Jesus before Annas, and we've been introduced to Annas and Caiaphas, reminded of Caiaphas's role. Then there's a sudden cut, and camera two comes into focus, and we find Peter. Look at verses 15 through 18. It says, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. We don't know who that disciple is. The disciple is not named. However, most believe this is probably John himself who is the author of this gospel. It's, it's in keeping with the way that he seems to speak of himself in a designation like the disciple that Jesus loved or the other disciple that would make sense. And John and Peter are often seen together. Um, and so they were kind of G- Jesus number one and number two, if you will. And so Peter and John being together would make sense, and it's in keeping with how John seems to refer to himself throughout this gospel. So it is uh, generally believed that this other disciple is John. So since that disciple, that is John, was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So we don't know the details surrounding the relationship between John and the high priest, But apparently, at least among their families, there was some recognition. And enough that John is able to get into the courtyard of the home of Annas, where Jesus has been led. But Peter, maybe for fear, maybe because he wasn't instantly recognizable to the people who were gatekeepers at the home of Annas, Peter remains outside. And when John notices that, he goes back to the servant girl who keeps watch at the door. So she'd be a gatekeeper, making sure that only people who have clearance, so to speak, enter the home of Annas, the high priest, or the former high priest. And so John goes back to this gatekeeper, the servant girl, and says, will you let my friend Peter come in too? And so Peter comes in. Now, as Peter is going into the door, this servant girl pauses, kind of stops him. Maybe she grabs a sleeve. Maybe she puts a hand up. Wait a minute you are not also one of his disciples, are you? And she says that in in a negative way. She doesn't say, hey, you're one of his disciples, right? She frames the question as though she's anticipating a negative answer, right? You're not one of his too, right? And perhaps Peter discerns some mockery or disdain in her tone of voice in the way she asks it, not another one of these guys, something like that. Whatever it is, Peter feels some pressure. Maybe it's because he knows that there are other more important people standing around who might overhear how he answers this girl's question. Have you ever been in a situation like that where you don't want to answer somebody's question honestly because you know that somebody else within earshot is going to hear you and you don't really want them to know the answer to that question? So you kind of like fudge away around it or maybe you've even blatantly told a lie in answer to the question so that the person over here wouldn't get the wrong idea. That seems to be what happens here. And so the servant girl says, you're not one of his disciples too, are you? And Peter says, I am not. How many times did Jesus say Peter was going to deny him this very night? Three times. 
So count with me. This is denial number one. Denial number one. You're not one of his disciples too, are you? No, no, no. You got, you got the wrong idea. I'm just here with my friend. I'm just here with John, right? I'm just here to watch. I'm, I'm not his disciple. And we get the detail from John that he joined others uh, outside in the courtyard where the servants and officers, so those are going to be those who are serving the high priest. So these are formal servants and officers who have some level of authority, have made a charcoal fire, and they're warming themselves by the fire. And so Peter joins these servants and officers of the high priest around the fire to warm himself. And then John jumps back to camera one again. So we've seen Peter bomb this first test when a servant girl keeping the door at the high priest's house said, wait, are you one of his disciples? And he went, nope, you're thinking of the wrong guy. And then John cuts back to camera number one where we find Jesus again being questioned now by Annas. So look at verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. So he's interested in two things. Who are your followers and what are you telling them? Perhaps he's interested more in how many followers do you have? And are you telling them or leading them towards some kind of revolt or insurrection? In other words, remember they're very afraid of a political overthrow. And Jesus has, it's true, spoken of a kingdom and being the king of a kingdom. He'll talk more about that to the Roman governor Pilate within the next couple of weeks. But so the high priest, we don't have words from him. We don't hear his voice, but we find out he's interested in who are your disciples and what have you been teaching them? And so tragically, I just want to point out that the irony of this situation where man stands in the position of judge over Jesus, the Son of God, by whom and for whom all things exist. He now stands receiving judgment, interrogation from this high priest. There's a tragic irony to be seen here. So Annas asks him, who are your followers and what are you teaching them? And Jesus' reply is interesting. He doesn't directly answer his question, which we've kind of come to expect from Jesus to some degree, right? His, quest, his answers to questions usually kind of go around the question or maybe even respond with a question of his own. And that's exactly what he does here. He said, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard from me what I said to them. They know what I said. Now, under the law, a defendant was actually not supposed to be directly interrogated or even to speak for himself. He was supposed to have witnesses who would speak for him. And then the prosecution, if you will, would bring in witnesses that would speak against him. And then the witnesses' testimony would be weighed against one another. And that's how a a verdict would be arrived at. So the fact that Annas is directly asking Jesus, speak for yourself, tell us about your teaching, tell us about your followers, is actually kind of going around the law. 
So in effect, what Jesus is saying here by saying, why don't you ask others who have heard my teaching is, why don't you give me a fair trial? Why don't you give me a lawful judgment here and let the witnesses speak for me instead of only allowing me to speak for myself? So Jesus is kind of saying, give me a fair trial here. But he also says there, I, I spoke nothing in secret, which we, we certainly know do, he can't mean that literally across the board, like I never taught my disciples privately, because we've seen him teaching his disciples privately for the last three chapters. It's all he did was instruct his disciples privately, right? So there's been private instruction along the way. I think what he's saying is, my message to my disciples in private and my message to the world has been the same. There is consistency. I'm not saying one thing to the world and then something secret to my disciples and sort of raising up this group to do something different than what I'm calling on the whole world to do. And so he says, the witnesses, those who have heard my teaching in public, could give credible testimony to what my teaching is and what my followers are about. Let's look at the response in verse 22. Jesus says, ask them. They know what I've said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? And I don't know about you, but that is, that is heartbreaking to me. To see a man made from dirt striking the creator in the face and calling him disrespectful. Is that how you talk to the high priest? It's like you, you want to just zoom out a little bit and look at what's going on here. And you, you're like, you got this all wrong, dude. This is utterly backwards. You are accusing Jesus of speaking disrespectfully to some human political authority, and you're striking him for it? This is the creator of the world. This is the sinless, eternal son of God who is walking willingly into suffering on behalf of God's people and for the glory of his Father. And you have the gall to call him insolent or insubordinate? It is utterly ridiculous. It is heartbreaking to see the Lord mistreated in this way. And this is just the beginning. The next few chapters are going to be much harder to take than this. It reminds us of Isaiah's description of the suffering servant in his prophecy in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6. It says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. And that is what we are beginning to see and will continue to see unfold in the life of Jesus over these next few weeks. So on the one hand, it is it raises your temperature. It makes your blood boil to see that somebody could be so disrespectful and insubordinate to Jesus himself. But friends, do we not similarly strike the face of our Savior with every impure thought, 
hateful word, selfish ambition, godless desire? Is not our unrighteousness the reason that he endured such insurgent and insubordinate mistreatment? So lest we get high and mighty and wag our fingers at these Jewish leaders, we strike our Savior every day with our sin and our insubordination before him. Jesus replies after getting struck and said, is that how you answer the high priest? Look at verse 23. Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Kind of like, that's the best response you have? I call for a fair, lawful trial, and the best you can do is punch me? If I said something wrong, point out what's wrong. Otherwise, you're, you have no leg to stand on here. What are you doing? And Annas apparently realizes that he's right and has nothing further to say, no further threat to make, no further interrogation. And so, verse 24, Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So Annas is now out of the scene, and Jesus is going to be shuffled along to the next uh, interrogation. Now, interestingly, John doesn't record for us Jesus' appearance before Caiaphas. John skips right over it. You can read about it in the other synoptic gospels, but John doesn't even go there. John goes straight from Annas sending him along The next time we come back to Jesus, he's being led before the Roman governor, Pilate. So, for some reason, he moves right past that. And I guess it's because we've seen all we need to see in terms of what the Jewish leaders' justice system is going to provide for Jesus. In other words, a mockery of it. A complete miscarriage of justice. They're not interested in getting the truth. They're interested in advancing their narrative, their plot. Because remember... Back in chapter 11, when the Sanhedrin met and Caiaphas made that prophecy accidentally that Jesus would die for the nation, John told us at the end of that, that so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So make no mistake, this is going in one direction and one direction only, and it's going to end with Jesus hanging on a cross. And if they've got to lie and cheat and make up stories and pay false witnesses in order to do it, then they'll do it. If all you want to do is win, it's not hard to win. If you're willing to break all the rules, if you're willing to be immoral about how you win, winning is not that tough. Jesus is not willing to do that. And Jesus is gladly, willingly submitting to the will of his Father to go to the cross. And so the events carry on. The ball keeps rolling. So after this scene, this shot, if you will, inside the house of Annas, presumably, where this interrogation has happened. Now the scene cuts back to Peter and it picks up, we have this detail, it picks up exactly where we left off, verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. Remember, that's where we left him. He was warming himself around the fire with these servants and officers of the high priest. He's just denied Jesus once to a gatekeeper servant girl. You can imagine he's probably feeling pretty uneasy in the presence of all of these servants and officials of the high priest warming himself by the fire, and waiting for things to move on. So they said to him, they being 
the servants and officials that were standing around the fire with him. So again, these are people that may have some level of importance and authority within the Jewish system. They said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? And they asked it in the very same way, in this negative framing. You're not one of his, right? And Peter says again, he denied it and said, I am not. That's denial number two. I am not. Then one of the servants of the high priest, check this detail out, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off. Oh, come on, small world. That's insane. A relative of the guy who Peter whacked his ear off when they were trying to arrest Jesus, who, by the way, John, uh, Jesus healed. John didn't even include that detail, which I think is interesting. But the other gospels tell us that Jesus actually healed the ear of that guy, and they name him. His name was Malchus. John doesn't name him and doesn't show Jesus healing him at any rate. So Malchus has a cousin or a brother or something who is one of the, these officials or servants of the high priest, and he must have been in the garden when that happened, and he recognizes Peter. Hey, you almost wonder why he didn't say, aren't you the guy that cut off my cousin's ear? Right? Like he says, wait, didn't I see you in the garden with him? You get that detail. And Peter again denied it. In fact, the gospel, uh, the other gospel's account would say that he denied it and began calling curses down upon himself. Like in the most vehement, drastic, graphic terms he can think of, no, no, a thousand times, no, you've got the wrong guy. It's not me. I'm not one of his followers. I am not. And John tells us, and at once a rooster crowed. Luke actually in records the detail for us that at that moment, Jesus made eye contact with him. I can't even imagine that moment. The shame, the disgust, the sense of failure and betrayal. When Jesus looks at you and you know you have just fulfilled what he told you you were going to do, you're going to deny me three times tonight. Then the rooster crows, and Jesus looks at you. Wow, that's, that's a low moment. And that's where Peter is. And the scene ends. John doesn't give us any more. He doesn't give us like a window into Peter's mind or heart. He just goes on with the story. So then verse 28, which we're not going to continue with today, says, then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. All right. So now we're on with the story. And there Peter is. Peter is left standing by the fire with these officials of the high priest having utterly failed to stand up for his Lord, who not a couple of hours earlier had declared his undying loyalty to Jesus. If I've got to die with you, I'll die with you. Jesus said, no, that's not going to play out like that. That's exactly what we've seen. Three times Peter has denied, disowned Jesus, his Lord. I want to just reflect on this for the last few minutes. There's a few things that I think these denials of Peter accomplish in the story that John is telling. And as we look at it, how this should sit with us. First of all, Peter's denials, as they occur, 
demonstrate Jesus' divine foreknowledge and his power over these events. Jesus is not merely a passive uh, participant in this story. He's not just being led along wherever the powers that be lead him. Jesus was a part of the plan and the purpose that would lead him to this very suffering and his crucifixion. So Jesus knows what's going to happen and he submits himself to it. We saw last week, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And he predicted that this would happen. He told Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And then that's exactly what happens. And so for one thing it should do as we read of Peter's denials and that they happen exactly as Jesus said they would happen is we should stand in awe of Jesus. We should see Jesus and go, this is not any ordinary guy. And remember, John is writing this whole gospel account that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So we should go, yeah, yeah, that sounds like Son of God to me. That sounds like Christ to me. That's no ordinary dude. So they demonstrate Jesus' divine foreknowledge and his power over these very events. The second thing, a second thing that it does for us, as we see Jesus, uh, Peter denying Jesus these three times, is it demonstrates how utterly alone Jesus is as he enters his suffering. Even his dearest, most intimate friend and follower has disowned him. Jesus is alone. Just like he said, the sheep would be scattered. And so we should look at Jesus entering this journey of suffering and mockery and abuse and torture and ultimately murder with deepest pity, not in the way of like, well, I feel sorry for you, where we're looking down our nose at somebody, but it should, it should raise the level of our compassion for what Jesus experienced, what he endured, and that in turn should make us realize all the more the depths and the lengths to which he was willing to go for our sorry souls. Because it was for our sin that he went there. It was for our unrighteousness that he suffered. He wasn't mistreated and mocked because of anything he had done wrong. He was sinless. He was mistreated and mocked for us because of our sin. And finally, that leads us to the final observation I want to make. We are Peter. I think John, as he's writing the story of Jesus standing faithfully before his accusers, bearing witness to the truth, while Peter runs away from his, I think he intends for us to see ourselves here. That's me. Maybe I haven't told somebody in a conversation, no, I don't believe in Jesus. But by my life, by my words, by my attitudes, by my sinful desires and choices, by the way I hoard my stuff and my money and I don't give and share with others and I don't, I'm not open with and forthcoming with gospel truth in the lives of people. All the time, we're in the place of Peter. We go, nope, not me. 
Oh, that's what it's going to cost me to follow Jesus? No, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not willing to do that. You want me to give that? No, I, I can't do that. We're Peter. And Jesus faithfully stands before his accusers and endures their interrogation and their mockery and their mistreatment and he bears witness to the truth consistently about who he is and he does that because he knows we can't do it. He knows that we're weak. He knows that we're going to fail, that we're going to fall. And so he stands in our place. In my place condemned he stood, the old hymn says. That's exactly what we see happening here. And that reality will unfold in increasingly graphic and powerful and unsettling ways over the next couple of chapters in John's gospel as we see what Jesus endures for us. He's doing that because of me. He's condemned in my place. I'm Peter. I deserve what he's getting. So may we stand in awe at the mercy and love of our Lord Jesus who willingly endured the suffering and the shame of the cross and of everything leading up to it. Trials that are a total joke. Men made out of dirt who slap him and spit on him. He did that for the Father's glory and for our salvation. Praise God.